Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. This week we are talking about Paul Thomas Anderson. Well, the films of Paul Thomas Anderson, not actually the person. I would also like to say I uh, I qualified at the end of last week with this, but I would like to reinforce that this is not about the films of Wes Anderson. If your favorite movie is Rushmore, you are going to be disappointed. I'm so sorry. Paul Thomas Anderson, not Wes Anderson. Paul Thomas Anderson kind of embodies the difficulty of being the best art and also the most popular. Yeah, yeah. I think that definitely uh, New Japan and Paul Thomas Anderson are both kind of examples of uh, blockbuster art house type work. You know what I mean? Where it has the kind of sensibilities and the approach and maybe the pacing of more artistic stuff, but still has the budget and the production values behind it. Uh, of like a, you know, a mainstream, big studio, uh, Hollywood A-list type movie. So it's really, you know, elevating that which is usually seen on the smaller scene. You have people who like the movies for different reasons and get different things out of it. Like for me, The Master is one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Once you realize that there's no harm, that the stakes in most Paul Thomas Anderson movies are very low. Like, uh, There Will Be Blood has pretty high stakes, but outside of that, it's it's pretty uh, personal, insular stakes. Once you realize that Freddy, the main character from the movie, is not, or one of the two main characters, it's uh, that's Joaquin Phoenix's character, and then uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays Lancaster Dodd, who is an L. Ron Hubbard stand-in. You're aberrated. I'm not. Know what that means? No. You've wandered from the proper path, haven't you? These problems you have? He's one of the hucksters of the Paul Thomas Anderson universe. Specifically Dodd in The Master to me, actually the one wrestling character who I can't help but think of for him is Brother Love. disingenuous like pseudo preacher he has the same reservoir of this like intense bubbling anger sorry you're unwilling to defend your beliefs in any kind of rational oh, if, if, if you if you if, if you already know the answers to your questions then why ask pig fuck that reminds me a lot of when vince gets angry you were just trying to sell me on something and now you're extremely angry and i'm kind of uncomfortable though i think at the same time you're not going to be able to do anything to me because we both know what this is this is the Bob Costas Interrupt program, right? It's a characterization I think few would share, but it might work for you in this it, instance. It worked for me. I mean, take a look at the tape when you play it All back. Right. How many times did Bob Costas interrupt Vince McMahon before he let him answer the question? Yeah, and I think that uh, Vince McMahon and Paul Thomas Anderson also are maybe wrestling with a lot of the same issues in their work. And one of the big ones that presents itself is kind of like toxic masculinity and specifically how anger and aggression and masculinity all kind of go hand in hand and how that generally leads people down a dark trail, but is still very alluring and still somehow feels like culturally or biologically the call. Yeah. Uh, 
That reminds me a lot of uh, Frank Mackey from Magnolia. One of the original like ideas of the pickup artist as a consumer product. A lot of that is him selling this idea, this entirely fake idea of what he thinks people want to hear, because that's what makes him feel powerful. That toxic masculinity becomes elevated to this completely different level where it's almost a joke in and of itself, but half the people don't get the joke. It was like the whole first run of the XFL, like all the marketing pre-launch and at launch was all about like, it's not for pussies, basically. Like that was the whole marketing strategy was it's not for pussies. Wanna play real football? My kind of football? Raw survival in the mud and snow. No domes, no fair catches, no phony grass. It's harsh, it's bruising, so it's beautiful. Think you're tough enough to play my kind of football? Then come and get it. Ah. Introducing the official game ball of the XFL from Spalding. The toughest football ever. Come on, Johnny. Oh, Johnny's mom is calling him. And they didn't really explain anything else until they got there on day one. And I, I hate to use that word in a, in a way to diminish either women or, or people, <laughs> people who might be called that word. But I mean, that was kind of the implicit language of the time was that this is football and it's football with a big, huge heart on coming right at you and you're going to love it or you're a pussy. What Mackie in Magnolia is doing is, is selling that to this, the, the beginning scene of him uh, when he first introduces himself. Respect the cock. And tame the cunt. Cut to the crowd, and the crowd is like a bunch of rabid dogs, basically. Uh, they're just eating up everything he's selling. And you can kind of, but he's preaching to the choir, and I think that's what Vince tries to do when he's out selling stuff things outside of wrestling and i think those two kind of are the external vents and to me the internal vents is uh the the jack horner speech from the beginning of boogie nights when he first meets dirk diggler's uh who is mark Wahlberg's character and uh jack horner is bart reynolds character and he explains what type of movies and stories he wants to make the story just sucks them in and when they Spurt out that joy juice. They just gotta sit in it. They can't move until they find out how the story ends. It's very much what Vince wants from wrestling. Like, that's his idea of what he wants to tell stories. He's pretty explicit about that. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think in Boogie Nights, you see this tension between telling stories and doing things that are really impressive. Like I think in some ways, all Paul Thomas Anderson movies are about getting over. Like the master is definitely about someone who is in the process of getting over in a huge way. Uh, Boogie Nights is about a guy who gets over immediately in, in spite of his total lack of talent, ability and brain power because he has a huge dick. Like it's, a, it, it, they're all about getting over in some way. And it's interesting because the Burt Reynolds character in Boogie Nights, uh, 
is is promoting or creating this kind of porn that the movie portrays is, as becoming outdated. That people don't want like the storyline based porn anymore. They want the action. They just want the emphasis on the sex and stuff. Uh, so it, it it's really it really does kind of match up with the the battle that Vince has been fighting for the last fifteen or twenty years. It, it, it's so analogous that you know he's he's still the kind of twentieth century kind of mid century. Uh, you know what I mean? Carnival Barker, uh, big time storyteller, narrative crafter, while everybody else just is kind of like looking for the instant gratification. And he's starting to feel that crumble out from under him, but is more angry and masculine and power hungry uh, in, in response to that. Philip Baker Hall, who's one of the troop of Paul Thomas Anderson, he plays Floyd Gondoli. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, who is, he comes and he speaks with Jack about um, the idea of putting his films on videotape and Jack does not want to do it because he sees it as, no, don't you want to tell stories? You know, if it looks like shit and it sounds like shit, then it must be shit. And what he doesn't understand and what you see later on in the movie as it progresses is this idea of like, no, it is actually really advantageous for the business to go in this direction in a way that may allow them to go back to where they were, where they get to the point where they're maybe telling stories, but they have to go through this period where it's all about just pumping out literally whatever you can as quickly as you can, whatever stories that you can. And that leads to probably the darkest part of Boogie Nights, which is when it's intercut with Dirk prostituting himself, but the part with Jack Horner and Roller Girl when they're videotaping in the limo, and um, a high school classmate of Roller Girl is the person they pull into the limo to have sex with Roller Girl. And he talks shit about both of them. And uh, Burt Reynolds beats the crap out of him. And then Roller Girl comes in, like, really fucks him up. But Burt Reynolds, uh, in that moment, that's like the dark part of Burt Reynolds. Because the rest of the movie is kind of like a grandfatherly person who genuinely cares about the people that he's working with. Yeah, and I think that scene is one of the most pro-wrestling scenes in Boogie Nights, actually. Is the idea of, like, uh, you know, being a band of misfits, being a group of carnies. But like you said, that that's your family. And even though you know each other do things that are objectively really weird and, and, and not in line with uh, mainline society, let's say, but still having great faith in each other and always standing up for each other and always being there for each other and like that's very pro wrestling that was the moment in the movie like so they're saying you guys are losers what you do is so scummy blah 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 blah. that's like the oh wrestling is fake moment and that's when all the people who've been you know tearing each other to pieces inside the business turn around and all get on the same team and just you know put all their effort into ruining that person it's it's really uh both exciting and uh and, and kind of touching in a grotesque way yeah and the end of the movie is actually I mean, it's very, it, just watch the movie if you have it. it. It's on Netflix. There's no reason not to. It's a very weird movie in terms of not the sexual politics, but the actual relationships. So I don't know how exactly it all translates, but he does build a family of the people that work for him as part of his production company. Oh, you the king, huh? Yes! Hey, don't oh, you oh, fucking oh, touch me, man! No, no, no! You Dirk. shut up, too! You're not the mother of me, and you're not my boss! You're not my mother! You're not my fucking mom! Hey, man. No, 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 no! I'm ready to shoot the scene, I want to shoot the scene, I'm fine. I want you out of here. Look, it's over, okay? I'm done. 
Listen now, to ready me, to shoot? Kid, I want you. Don't you fucking call me a kid. What? I'll fuck you up. You want to see me kick some ass? I know fucking karate. You want to fuck oh, me up? Oh, you're fucking out. Out. Come on. You are fired. And we're back to Vince McMahon, right? It, it, anytime you hear any wrestler from who's, who's you know, varying in age from Shawn Michaels to Zack Ryder, it's like everybody thinks that Vince is their dad. And that's where a lot of Vince's power comes from. I mean, I think in, in a way... He, you know, he can be paternal in a positive way where he's looking out for everyone and he really treats it as a family. That's always when he's the most offended is when someone, you know, doesn't think that WWE is part of their family and stuff. I have no sympathy for Brett whatsoever. None. I have no sympathy for someone who was supposed to be a rustling traditionalist, not doing the right thing for the business that made him, not doing the right thing for the fans and the performers and the organization who helped make him what he is today. Brett made a very, very selfish decision. Brett's gonna have to live with that for the rest of his life. Brett screwed Brett. And I, I think you see that with Vince and, and Daniel Plainview very starkly. I'd like to hear you speak instead of your little dog. Woof, 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 woof. I'm going to Mexico with my wife. I'm going away from you. But that wasn't so hard, was it? Killing us with what you're doing. You're killing my image of you as my son. You are stubborn. You won't listen. You're not my son. Please don't say that. I know you don't mean it. Well, it's the truth. You're not my son. You never have been. You're no... You're no orphan. Part of the function of uh, the way that Paul Thomas Anderson builds protagonists is that they can be bad people, but you will still find people who root for them in a way that they're not, like, rooting for Joker. Like, when people root for the Joker, they're rooting for evil and badness. And I think that up until the very end of the movie, the plays that Daniel Plainview makes against Eli, for instance. I need help. I'm a sinner. I've let the devil grab hold of me in ways I never imagined. I'm so full of sin. The Lord sometimes challenges us, doesn't he, Eli? Oh, yes, he does. Daniel, yes, he does. Yes, he does. <laughs> failed to alert me to the recent panic in our economy and this I, I, I must have this I must I must I must I must I must have this my investments have Daniel I won't bore you but I don't want to say Eli had it coming but he should have known better and he wasn't a great person not that he deserved to die but he like isn't someone you're rooting for. You're almost rooting, you root for um, Daniel Plainview's son, but you don't root for Eli at any point. You just don't necessarily don't want to watch him die. But I, I think that's, you still kind of feel bad for Plainview in a way that I think happens in a lot of different instances throughout Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Like Alma, the one of the main characters in his most recent movie, Phantom Thread, literally poisons Daniel Day-Lewis' character to the point where he kind of accepts it as a better version of himself, which seems very abusive, but you spend time with those two characters and you kind of understand where she's coming from in terms of wanting to do that. And that's 
it's something you just see over and over again in Paul Thomas Anderson movies. You see these people who are like broken or like uh, Mackie from uh, Tom Cruise's character from Magnolia is, is, is a perfect example of this. He is a terrible person, but went through a lot of terrible shit growing up in a way that you can understand how it broke his brain in meaningful ways. Like he is still given pathos and, and you are forced to give him empathy. And I, I think that's, something that you see in anti-heroes is this idea of them coming up against something in wrestling when they work is when they're coming up against something worse than them. Yeah. I, I a great example. Of that is the William H. Macy character in Magnolia, the, the Billy quiz boy, whatever, whatever the character's actual name is where like he is desperate and he is like judgmental and he lives in the past, not in a way that like, is is cute and sad but in a way that's like really pathetic and gross and stuff but somehow you're all every time that he's making a decision to be bad the whole movie you're just like pulling at your hair and being like no no why would you why would you do that you have the chance to be like kind of just a vaguely normal person and then every time he does something nice you're like yay thank you for doing that i don't know where to put things you know I really do have love to give. I just don't know where to put it. With the master in particular, Freddy, who is in any other context of any other movie, definitely the heel, is such a baby face in this movie. You root for him so much throughout the movie to overthrow what Dodd, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is doing. Like every single turn, you end up rooting for him to like get away with what he's doing because it, and it's not just the juxtaposition of someone who's crazy, but like in a way that's almost charming, uh, but it's also the idea that like relative to Dodd, he's a good person. Been implanted with a push pull mechanism that keeps you fearful of authority and destructive. We are in the middle of a battle that's a trillion years in the making and it's bigger than the both You're of us. You're making this shit up. You made this shit up. You don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. No, you don't. I give you facts. They don't give they me are not facts. facts. What facts? They are fucking facts. What facts? Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Don't you kick the bed some more. Fuck you. Fuck you, you lazy ass piece of shit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think he has that kind of rebellious spirit, which is what sets him apart from every other character in the movie. And it's 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 completely portrayed. I mean, there's no question about it. It's portrayed as like literal madness, like the deal with him, like making the mermaid on the beach and then having sex with it in front of everybody and stuff like that is like legitimate madness that's presented in the movie. But at the same in the same way, like that that's the only real spark of life in the movie. Like everybody else is very like strapped down or just along for the ride or kind of like Stepford wife happy to be there. But like his insanity and his sexual aggression, which are like super problematic are the only real life force in the movie that feels worth rooting for. When you see anti-heroes work, they are allowed to exist entirely outside of the rules of the system. As long as they never use that against people who don't deserve it. I appreciate the fact that you and the World Wrestling Federation care. And I also appreciate the fact that hell, 
you can kiss my ass. Yeah, definitely. And I think that you really see that line walked by the Dirk Diggler character, by the Mark Wahlberg character in Boogie Nights too. Like towards the end of the movie, he's kind of got this like Scott Hall thing going on where he's like the world's like slickest, coolest heel, like everybody's into him and he's really into himself. But you also have that gnawing thing where you're like, I don't know, I feel like this guy is going to tear himself apart. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like these, these demons are still knocking on the door. Freddy and Dirk, I think both very much stand for America in different ways. Like Dirk is the like lovable side of America that's like kind of roguish and like doesn't really know how to do uh anything right but just has a big dick and is super charming and everybody's got to respect the big dick and everybody you know wants to laugh at your jokes at parties to to be cool because you're the captain of the football team or whatever like dirk is that part of america and 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 i think that you know that movie was very much made like in the roaring 90s like in, in a lot of our pre-production discussions for this episode you and i have talked about how boogie nights kind of represents it, it's an attitude era moment in movies and that's that's because, you know, it was created in that, that same kind of late 90s time frame when a lot of those, the same cultural stuff was stirring up that was influencing wrestling. The level to which Boogie Nights is an Attitude Era movie was kind of mind-blowing to me. Boogie Nights is titillating in all of the ways that the, 90, the late 90s, and in particular WWF, was very similar in terms of the constructs of trying to pull the veil back on this thing that represents in a fictional way a rep a huge part of our identity as human beings like fighting and engaging in, in in combat and competition is a really fundamental part of who we are as people and so is having sex and i think they're both the movie boogie nights and the attitude are, are trying to like destroy that world to rebuild it the world of Porn knows it has to destroy itself to come out of it okay. Which is what I mentioned earlier with the VHS to film. They had to, wrestling understood, Vince understood that they had to sell a certain style of, <laughs> I was trying to find a better word than entertainment, but I think it's the only one that fits. Because it's not wrestling, it's entertainment. That we, We've talked about this in previous episodes, the Vince speech of just like, this is a television show. That was him making it entertainment and that allows you to do different things in a way that when you're pretending it's art or pretending it's this traditional thing, it, it you're beholden to those ideas. Yeah, I think in both the world of Boogie Nights and the world of Attitude Era WWF Raw, I think we saw a lot this idea that like pushing boundaries and breaking through long established genre constraints, there's this idea that that work was really, really sexy. And like you said, titillating. Like there was something lurid to this idea that like there's there's been this structure used before and now we're breaking out of it. And that's definitely something that's like literally going on in Boogie Nights, right? Like you said, the storyline transition to the way the genre is changing, but also it's kind of going on in the movie. Like this is pre-Sopranos, like violence and sex weren't as violent and sexy on TV and in movies as they are now. It, it, and you know, it, you, when you think of like the late nineties, like I think of like the Rush Hour movies, like I think of the action comedy when I think of that kind of mid to late nineties era movie. And Boogie Nights was like, no, there's going to be sex and there's going to be real, you know, pretty graphic violence. And there's also going to be these long, very talky portions where where people are talking out these kind of transparently symbolic conversations. So it, it was just something so different. The transition from the movies that Jerk Horner makes at the beginning of the film Boogie Nights to the point where 
Dirk and Reed start pitching him the Brock movies, the the movies he does that have actual storylines where he's a secret agent. Well, I don't like seeing women treated that way. This guy who plays Johnny Wad, it's always about slapping some girl around or whatever. It's not right. It's not cool. It's just not sexy. I mean, it's not sexy like it should be, Jack. Th this guy's more of like a James Bond type of character. You know, he's, he's classy. He's a world travel guy. Those are the transition between like the new generation, which I love, like foundation, heart foundation. I'm not so much anti-American as I'm just very, very pro-Canadian. For me, Canada is a country where we still take care of the sick and the old, where we still have health care. And to me, the Attitude Era matches up almost perfectly when, with when they move to video and you see the videos they are making, which are these like pretty explicitly misogynist, like not even storyline driven movies about just having sex with as many girls as possible and like violence. If movies, films caused violence, we'd be able to wipe out violence tomorrow. Boom, no more films. That's fine with me. I'll find something else to do. I'll fuck on my own time. You know, I got other interests. I'm a magician. Um, and, you know, hopefully I like, you know, that that will be something that I focus on in the future because you can't fuck forever. I realize that. Anyway, violence is something that plagues us as a society. And violent misogyny. What about your character, Brock Landers, and what some people might consider violent attitudes towards women? Violence? No. What? I mean, if there's a certain amount of, you know, violence or action in this series of films, you know, that's the movie. Which is the Attitude Era in a nutshell, basically. You know, when you look at everything that we do on balance in terms of, of entertainment, you stay with the storyline, Bob, okay? Our women are extremely strong. Now, I would suggest that the degradation, as you called it, of Trish, which I was, was of her own volition, by the way. I wasn't making her do do that. This is a soap opera. Yeah, absolutely. And there's definitely this idea that as genres and as technology evolve, generally the first use of the new technology is going to be like violently misogynistic. It's like what got the internet, the consumer internet over, like pretty much porn and stolen music. You know what I mean? And like you said, in that there should they show the the transition to video and the initial video movies are, like you said, much more graphic and much more misogynistic. And I think that we've seen that kind of in the history of uh, wrestling as well, that that's been, that's been, I mean, obviously not, not at the moment. There's a lot of restorative justice being done with, with women's wrestling in 2018, certainly. But, but I think even as we've seen progress, we've seen violent misogyny in, in wrestling as well. Paul Thomas Anderson does a really good job of addressing both performative toxic masculinity and just like and latent toxic masculinity in a way that meaningfully moves the conversation forward at least for a male director um but i think what vince did and the problem he had for a really long time is he ignored that and he let it fester and then it once it became no longer okay to have women just be eye candy like when that became an offensive idea as it should 
they had trouble transitioning out of there until they said, no, we have to completely overhaul the way that we look at this division and treat them like they're equals and build from there, not from trying to build them up to be equals. We have to make them equals and then they will eventually, they will fake it until they make it. And they've made it very quickly because half the audience, I think in wrestling is about 40% of the audience and that's climbing are women. Many of whom are like, like wrestling have liked wrestling for just as long as the, as men have, but don't didn't have people they could sincerely look to as main eventers as as role models in a meaningful way because they weren't given agency in their own storylines, let alone like in the world. Can I say one thing about the the new group of, of female wrestling fans who I'm I'm so glad are at the table? Yes. They only like Roman Reigns because he's handsome. <laughs> Twenty minute conversation on that talking point. Go. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's the worst. That's the worst. <laughs> You can think Roman Reigns is handsome or not. I don't care, but... Uh, now I'm thinking about sexy Roman Reigns. <laughs> We're going to get extreme on this episode. No, and I think um, what you see at the end of Boogie Nights is this idea of female empowerment. Like, um, Roller Girl goes back to school. Amber Waves uh, is now a commercial director. Uh, there, there's a lot of empowering images of women at the end of the movie and I think that's an important, like, to see the way women are treated throughout the movie until the end. From the beginning, when it's pretty good, to the end of the movie where it's good again, there's this really dark period where they're treated like shit. I mean, not necessarily by jerk, but his opinions go from stridently feminist to, I don't give a shit because I'm high on coke. I don't want to say everybody in the Attitude Era was high on coke, but you could see how that, like, adrenaline rush of, like, just get over, just get over, just do what we need to get over became an excuse to put this titillating stuff this dangerously titillating like this the you are 14 year olds who do not understand how their hormones work watching this and thinking that this is an okay way to treat women that had a deleterious effect on a wrestling fans understanding of women wrestlers at the very least and possibly even women as human beings (laughs) like and I think they played hard and fast with norms of society in a way that wasn't progressive. It was it was re, it was almost reactive to the movement trying to be made, as like even earlier through Boogie Nights of just like uh, Amber Wave starts directing stuff and it, she's kind of dismissed by everybody. And at the end, she she gets to experience something she wanted to do. But you see that like that wrestling had to go through that similar path. I think that does very much mirror what's going on in wrestling right now, but also I'll qualify that in one way in that the center of the business is still the guy who's over because he has the big dick. This is my yard now. Uh, you know what I mean? That like they are growing in power and growing in the respect of their peers within their community. But like the thing, the it thing, the thing that the people really want, the thing that at the end of the day makes all the money is the big dick. And I think that's definitely still the way that both a lot of fans who watch and talk about WWE online think of wrestling. And frankly, just the way TV shakes out, you talked about the time inequities on previous episodes. The time, the way some of that stuff shakes out demonstrates that people in the back still think that the, that the dick is the, is, the, is the main event. The dick is the money draw, you know? <laughs> the dick is the money draw. That was supposed to be like a tent revival preacher, but it turned into Borat in the middle. But I think I brought it back at the end. I don't know. All this time you've been saying that, I've just been thinking about Big Dick Energy, BDE. <laughs> There's a lot to love about Paul Thomas Anderson movies. And outside of the jail scene, which is maybe my favorite scene in any movie, uh, 
the thing I love most about any of his movies is the people they have do television or the production team, I should say. He does a really good job, humanizes the actual art they create because you understand watching them do the lighting or the the film roll, uh, the film reel runs out during Dirk's first scene. And like they miss the, they don't miss the ending, but they like have to worry about switching out the film. And it's like all of that stuff you don't realize about how productions are made is something I always find interesting. And I wish we could see more of that in, in WWE, at least like, I would like to hear backstage stories from people who were actually part of the, the, the production teams. Cause I find that incredibly interesting, how you create this like world just on the edges of it. I think the Attitude Era was the first time that they like kind of suggested that they were letting people in that way. Like when I think of like even like the portrayals of like Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe on TV and the idea of them like being, you know, the the gophers, the stooges for Vince and stuff. And it like that that was sort of the the beginning of, of starting to let people feel that way. And and to his credit, to some degree, uh, to his qualified credit. Uh, that's really what Vince Russo was all about was that he understood that, or I don't want to say he understood, but he felt that to many fans or to the fan of the 21st century who he felt he was cultivating, uh, that the idea of people who would be pro wrestlers having relationships with each other and going about the business of doing pro wrestling was more interesting than pro wrestling does that make sense like that was kind of the way that that, that vince russo in my eye was was trying to steer the business in like 1998 and what uh, boogie nights does really well is that vince russo thing like you said that paul thomas anderson that robert altman thing of making you feel connected to every single person in the boogie nights universe in the boogie nights like world and have them connected to each other in ways that are meaningful and in, in ways that you can recognize through the just watching their relationships. It doesn't have, there doesn't have to be exposition. I need help, Jack. I think that like that works because you've established these relationships between people in the same way that like when the heart foundation came together, it really works because there's already these established relationships they've been working on and building and changing in ways that makes the things that they're doing meaningful, meaningful, but it's not necessarily exposition, like how they get the heart foundation together. We fought, we fought like two men in Wembley stadium. And after you won, I hugged you. We came back to America. They turned us against each other. And it just reminds me of everybody coming together and the way that there's real love in the, like from the beginning with Reed, very quickly, Reed, who's John C. Riley's character, goes very quickly from thinking Dirk is a threat to being like, oh, he's an okay guy. Like, I can like this guy. He's good at this stuff. I can trust him. And they become friends and they stop trying to compete with each other. Reed stops trying to compete with Dirk. And it like they build that relationship so at the end of the movie you're like oh of course they're still friends like they stayed friends the entire time because they had this when they go through the drug addiction and stuff like that you totally get why they stay friends and like are willing to do shit for each other it's like 
it's they have established this relationship because they have the same ideas about things and they like the same stuff. So why wouldn't you have heels who hate the same people eventually become actual friends and help each other out and, and have it be about like the relationships between the people? Right. And to bring it back around to New Japan, I mean, New Japan does that very much where like everybody is part of a faction, but not not in the Vince Russo gang war sense, just in the sense like everybody does have this like makeshift family of people who they who they have relationships where they, you know, rely on each other. They tag together professionally. Um, and, and, and then there are those rivalries within the group. Like recently, you know, you had like uh, Jay White taking on Okada. You know what I mean? And there's that tension, even though they're both in chaos and stuff. So I think that New Japan, as one of their storytelling tactics, does use that kind of uh, makeshift family that everybody has and, and use those dynamics to help tell wrestling stories. And I, I think that's what you get when you're trying to, in the way that wrestling is usually emblematic of the values of the place it takes, either the country or of origin, like how they see the world. I think that Paul Thomas Anderson movies, almost all of them take place in California and he's trying to tell the same stories and he's doing it through the prism of an industry for the most part. A lot of his movies are adjacent to the film industry writ large, the the, the idea that Southern California or at least Hollywood and, and Los Angeles in general are kind of an industry town that there's this inherent seediness to it. I think that he definitely throughout his films like portrays especially Southern California to go back to something I said at the beginning as places where everybody's on the make, like everybody's trying to get over and either uh, succeeding at it and, and reaping the rewards of it, often dubious, or failing at it and either trying to figure out how to get better at getting over or trying to get out of the game and, you know, go live a straight, honest life. Like, that seems to be the kind of main struggle that every single character in all the movies is going through. When we're talking about wrestling, we're talking about J Japanese ideals or American ideals manifested through conflict told over long periods of time. And I, I think what Paul Thomas Anderson does, that, does with that is he does that over... Uh, a three-hour film, but I can't think of a single flashback he has that's really that isn't uh, diegetic. Like uh, at the beginning of Magnolia, he has all of the the stuff about coincidence, but like everything past that is done through like video footage of the people and the way he he doesn't really he always progresses forward in time, so you don't get the cinema thing that wrestling can't really do unless it's uh, the ultimate deletion or any of the broken universe stuff of like playing with time and space. So he, he tells these generally linear forward, uh, like forward moving stories through time that are long form in the way a wrestling thing is and dealing with a lot of the same characters and character types but he's doing it in, a, he's truncating it into these three hour movies. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the duration of Paul Thomas Anderson movies because anybody who knows me knows that, like, any move, the, the further a movie gets past two hours, the, le the, the less and less chance that I will sit down and even watch it. Like, for me, comedy movies should be like 90 to 110 minutes, and like a drama should be like 110 to 125 minutes. <laughs> um, but 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 Paul Thomas Anderson movies really really draw me in every single time. Like The Master, I mean you've said it multiple times. I thought that The Master when I saw it was one of those captivating movies I'd seen in a really long time. And it's because he really does draw you in to the flawedness of the characters, which is really what works about wrestling on both levels on like the traditional 
level. I mean, like wrestling characters are so interesting. They're not like normal people. They're larger than life, et cetera, et cetera. And also like the meta narrative of wrestling, right? Like so many wrestlers are, or have been, or have become broken people in the way that PT Anderson characters have. So, so I, I think that his movies really are kind of operas of, of language and, and meaning and, and exploration in a way that's, that's really fun, even for someone who typically really despises long, quote unquote, deep movies. Magnolia in particular is this long movie. It is a hundred, it is three hours and eight minutes, but it does not feel like three hours and eight minutes. It feels like a two hour, it feels like separate one hour movies that you totally want to watch in a row in order with no break. Like the work rate for that stuff is, and the score is a big part of that. And I think that's the one thing res- missing from wrestling is a score somehow. Uh, I guess that would be the, uh, the commentary, like good commentary will get you through a match uh, and, and good work rate. Just the way that he moves forward. He uses a lot of di- especially earlier, he uses a lot of dynamic camera movements and stuff like that. He knows how to tell a compelling story for three hours which is something uh the wwe could probably use some help on take take a little lesson maybe yeah i did have a a question which i'd been thinking about a lot before the episode if you could have one wrestler's story be told not necessarily um in the inherent vice adaptation kind of sense but in the like daniel plainview being uh the oil the novel oil uh, being a basis for that character is like part of a larger re- reference library of that building, that Daniel Plainview character. Uh, either one of those, uh, who do you think would work best? Because I, I have one I've been thinking about a lot, and I, I think you might like it, but I want to hear yours first. Well, I had not pondered this question before. I just heard it for the first time, and before you even finished asking it, I knew that my answer was Jake Roberts. Uh, I think Jake Roberts is really indicative of a time and a place and kind of a shift in the business that he was part of during a shift in the overall American identity. And he has that really sort of beautiful story about, you know, uh, having a a pretty fucked up or pretty less than perfect normal family and, you know, trying to find another family through wrestling and the kind of ups and downs of that. And I think he he would be the kind of perfect uh, flawed, but uh, valiant character to, to be at the center of a P.T. Anderson movie. What's yours? Uh, the Hollywood Blondes. Ooh, why is that? Do tell. I think that Steve Austin as a character is a very compelling idea uh, as this guy who's a, clearly a star and should be a, one of the biggest stars in the business, but is being held back. And Brian Pillman as his tag team partner, as the kind of freddy character almost but a more intelligent more slightly more put together version of freddy uh but i think that both of them would be really good paul thomas anderson characters and i think that era of wcw would be a really good place to live in in a way that i think he would get a lot of value out because i think i think it's very much the hollywoodification of wrestling is what's happening there where it's like all about like oh we just got to get hulk hogan and we have to do this we have to do this and it's like no you could have just built actual stars and you wouldn't have lost the war but you gave away that so that you could have the stars and i think that that'd be a really interesting dynamic that would hew very close to 
a world, the world that Paul Thomas Anderson comes from without being something he's already covered in a meaningful way. Hell yeah, I think that sounds great. And I, I definitely think that Brian Hillman would have fucked that sandcastle. <laughs> Although I will say that Freddie would have whipped out his dick and pissed in the middle of the ring. So, so I'm liking where this, this is going. Uh, and did you have, I know you said you don't like thinky things at the beginning of this episode, but uh, do you have a thinky wrestling podcast this week? Uh, you know, I've recommended uh, clips from Tony Schiavone's podcast, uh, What Happened When, multiple times. And like people mostly think of that as, as being kind of a more uh, lighthearted, kind of fun, silly look at things. But he recently did uh, a, a great actual long form, like serious uh, career spanning interview with uh, with Wade Keller and Bruce Mitchell of the Pro Wrestling Torch, who we talked about when we talked about dirt sheets. So don't think that I'm just here to kick dirt. Uh, no, no pun intended on Wade. I'm also here to recommend his stuff. Uh, that he and Bruce did a tremendous interview with Tony, just talking about like breaking into pro wrestling. I mean, like his first day of work in the wrestling business was Starcade '83. So it's like, you know, welcome, welcome to Earth, as as Will Smith says in Independence Day. I don't know why that's the reference, probably because I'm from the 90s. So Will Smith, Welcome to Earth, Summer Blockbuster, Tony Schiavone, all these things go together, clearly. So definitely check out that interview. Uh, the name of the podcast, if you don't already know, is uh, very creative. The Wade Keller Pro Wrestling Podcast. If you type that in your app, you'll definitely find it. Uh, the first half of the interview dropped back on uh, the 3rd of August. And the second half will have dropped before you hear this. Um, so definitely check out that career-spanning Tony Schiavone interview with Wade Keller and Bruce Mitchell. It goes beyond, uh, you know, the, the kind of comedy stuff that he did on his show, although there certainly is some of that. And, and he really, really digs deep on Crockett, on WCW from basically start to finish. Really, really good. And, and, and a, lot of the, a lot of the spots I, would, I was always hoping that he and Conrad were going to hit and weren't getting to, he, he actually covered in this interview. So I really, really recommend it. Sounds great. Uh, did you have anything in particular you wanted to plug? Oh, well, as usual, you can follow me on Twitter at DaveWritesJunk. And of course, as we're getting closer to SummerSlam, there is uh, coverage mounting over at The Wrestling Estate. Uh, as you hear this, last Friday, a one of our weekly roundtables dropped, and it was all about SummerSlam history. And um, I'll throw out a real sexy teaser and say that I don't think much of SummerSlam history. So if you're intrigued to hear more, or if you uh, want to read some differing viewpoints of people who think it's the second WrestleMania, uh, you can uh, check out that roundtable and more great wrestling coverage, uh, WWE, Impact, New Japan, just every which of thingamabob. Uh, check it out at The Wrestling Estate. Yeah, uh, and, and uh, D Dave... Um is too modest to mention that I, they had a really great, one of my favorite roundtables so far on favorite wrestling television shows. It, it was a nice look at the ways that people consume wrestling in a, in a way that you don't really get to see because everybody just writes about raw or SmackDown or conversely, they specifically write about like impact or something like that. You don't get people just being like, Oh, this is what I watch when I'm not reviewing stuff or right. Thinking about wrestling and I'm just watching wrestling. It was a really uh, out of if you're gonna start reading at any roundtable, I strongly suggest that one, and then you read the one on SummerSlam. Well, great, thank you very much. I appreciate you saying that. That one was a lot of fun because, like you said, it actually really made me articulate more succinctly than I've done in other places what I really look for in a wrestling show. So thanks for thanks for putting it over, brother. I uh, speaking of putting things over, you can you can check me out at uh, the Nixer. That's T H E. N1CKSTER. You can check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com. 
you can download us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Store, and iTunes. Uh, you can also rate, review, and subscribe to us on those specific platforms. And don't forget to check out our YouTube channel. Uh, we have produced two videos, and we will be producing a third video this week, uh, which will actually be the topic of this specific episode on Paul Thomas Anderson uh, movies, uh, though it'll be obviously, as it was the last two weeks, a truncated version of a uh, discussion we're having. Um, and yeah, that's uh, about it. I can't think of anything else I, I, I want to add. Uh, Dave, do you do you have anything you wanted to add? Oh, I just wanted to remind everybody that we are building a rocket ship to the moon one brick at a time over at patreon.com slash HWETW. That's short for How Wrestling Explains the World, of course. And you can support us at the $1 or $2 level. That's really what I uh, what I hope that people will consider doing. I mean, if you want to throw us a little more than that, that's really excellent, too. But you get some really nice, really straightforward perks. We'll give you a shout-out on the show if you give us a little money. We'll give you some show notes if you give us a little more money. You'll be getting uh, access to even more of those exclusive videos that Nick was talking about, which, by the way, he said we produce them. He produces them. He's the one with the talent. Watch the videos. Check it out. Give us the money and listen next. Week. That land has been had. Nothing you can do about it. It's gone. It's had. If you would just you take this lease, Daniel. Drain it. Drain it, Eli, you boy. Drain dry. I'm so sorry. Hey, if you have a milkshake. Here among the poor, sad, despicable, oppressive, misinformed. Fight your tongue secure